Can you hear me? Oh, the magic button. I wonder if I had it on. No, you would have heard me singing and that would have not been pleasant. So I know it wasn't on during praise and worship. So good to be with you this morning. It is good to um, have the opportunity to share God's word with you as well. And we'll punt. It's good to share God's word with you as well this morning. This is the second Sunday of Advent. We lit the second candle. I love the season of Advent. I love what it offers us. This this time on the church calendar, and it's not the CIL master calendar, which is a work of beauty in and of itself that you have access to, But this is the church calendar that the church has followed for hundreds and hundreds of years. We're very familiar with the Gregorian calendar. That's what we call the January through December calendar that we mark days and weeks and months and organize our exterior lives with that calendar. Job responsibilities, family responsibilities, vacations, school activities, games, all the things that, that we do in our lives, we tend to use that. We have it on the calendar, right? My family lives by the calendar, particularly when my kids were younger. If it wasn't on the calendar, it did not exist. It didn't matter if you had told me. It did not exist if it wasn't on the calendar. But we can be so focused on what we're doing What's happening externally? What we're producing? I'm producing a a good job. I'm producing great kids. Whatever it is we're producing, we can get so focused on that that the days tick by, the weeks tick by, the months tick by. And the church calendar has a different focus. It's not about organizing our exterior lives. It's not a tool to help us do more. It offers a different way of marking time, a focus other than productivity. These these seasons of Advent and Lent, the, the holy days, Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, offer us a rhythm of life that is focused on Christ, a way to organize our internal lives, even as we take care of of the responsibilities of our external lives. It's a way for us to move through time as those who are of God's kingdom, living under the reign of Jesus, and that's a different kind of life. We walk through the world differently, we see differently, we respond differently, So this church calendar lends itself to a very different kind of life. You know, it might might make more sense to us if the church calendar started Christmas, Christmas Day, or maybe Christmas Eve, right? If, If the church calendar started with this celebration of God incarnate, of God taking on flesh, but it doesn't. The church calendar backs up 40 days and starts with a season of Advent. It starts with longing, with waiting, with preparation, with anticipation. It starts in darkness, waiting for the light to shine through. 
As a means of marking a new year, it's a pretty stark contrast to our January 1st new year with all of its I statements. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to achieve this. The church calendar starts with the promise of Messiah and our cry, Jesus, we need you. Come. The lectionary text for Advent, and the lectionary is a, a cycle of readings, a three-year cycle of readings every day that offer a, a psalm, an Old Testament, a New Testament, usually an epistle, and a gospel reading. And those, those texts through Advent take us through what we call the Christmas story, but it starts all the way back in the Old Testament with the promise of the Messiah and our first scripture today speaks of that, that waiting, that anticipation, that preparation. I'm going to give you a little backstory before I get to the scripture. You're probably familiar with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth actually was a descendant of one of the daughters of Aaron, Moses' brother, and scripture tells us that they were both righteous people living without blame as they kept God's commands. The sorrow of their life, though, was that they had no children. And at the, the point we step into this story today, they were well past the age of that happening. And yet, don't you love that? And yet... This is what's happening. This is the situation. This is the circumstance. And yet God moves. And that happens in this story. Zechariah was on his rotation as a priest. It was his, his uh, appointment to go in to burn incense in the sanctuary. And while he was in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and announced that Elizabeth would have a son. The text tells us Zechariah was overcome with fear. You might expect a little more from a priest than being overcome with fear. But uh, let me tell you, it's a good little note to keep in mind about unrealistic expectations of preachers and pastors. <laughs> Zechariah was overcome with fear, and he questioned the angel, who was Gabriel. He questioned the angel, how on earth could this happen? How, how could this be? Well, maybe Gabriel thought that he could have expected a little more from Zechariah too because he said to Zechariah that you, you won't speak until the baby comes because you have not believed this message from God. You will not speak until your child is born. That's where our text picks up today. Luke 1, 67 through 69 After the baby is born, then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, 
salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The theme of the second Sunday of Advent is peace. While we often use the definition for peace that it's an absence of conflict, that just seems like such a a flat one-dimensional definition. It almost seems like like a void or nothing. If there is conflict and that goes away, then there is peace. But that's just, there's so much more to what peace is. The Hebrew word we translate peace is shalom, and it implies completion, wholeness, a wholeness of something that's complex with lots of pieces and parts. And when all those pieces fit together perfectly, when they function exactly as they're meant to, as a whole, there is shalom. Functioning exactly. All the pieces of creation fit perfectly together. Functioning exactly as God intended, as he designed. Creation flourished Humans flourished, and there was shalom. There was peace. And even as that peace was fractured, at the very same time, there was a promise of redemption and salvation, of things being set right again, the promise of a Savior and the promise of shalom, of peace. That beautiful blessing that Zechariah spoke over his, his baby son ends in that promise of peace. It's verses 78 and 79. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You may have recognized as we read through all of that blessing, you may have recognized phrases and, and bits of, and pieces of it as coming from Old Testament prophets. Zechariah is picking up language and quoting from uh, Malachi, from Isaiah, from an earlier, earlier Zechariah, from Ezekiel, from the psalmists. Words of promise and hope of rescue and salvation and covenant and forgiveness and mercy, holiness, righteousness. Words holding out hope for wholeness, for shalom, for peace, for redemption. The prophecy that Zechariah spoke 
was the first in a very, very long time. There had been no prophet for the people of Israel for 400 years. God had not spoken to a human being with a message for that person to share with his people. It's a long time to be in silence. But now prophecy has burst out again. As N.T. Wright says, what had begun as a kind of punishment for Zechariah's lack of faith now turns into a new sort of sign, a sign that God is doing a new thing. So in this, in this blessing, Zechariah rehearsed the story of Israel, rehearsed what God had done, what God had promised. And then over his baby, he said, you're going to be a prophet going before the Lord, preparing his way, giving his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And then we have a, a blank in time. We, we don't know exactly what happens over the next few years, but we're going to pick up the story in Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiber, Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Luke's given us a lot of detail in those first couple of verses. If you've been with me in Veritas, this is kind of, um, what's this communication situation? We're getting a lot of information about society, about the environment, about the, the, the way the world was working right then. And it's a story of oppression and misery that was building up to an explosion. Rome had ruled for about 100 years at this point, totally dominating the area. But there had only recently been a, a Roman governor in the area, in Caesarea, and he had a base in Jerusalem as well. Caesar Augustus is dead, and Tiberius has been ruling for about 15 years. He was a tyrant, cruel and vicious. The two sons of Herod the Great were ruling somewhat shakily under Roman power. These two boys were not considered by the Jews to be, to be real rulers. Um, they kind of slid in on daddy's coattails and were a, a self-made ruling family. They were ruling like Rome did by fear and oppression. That's the political power at the time of the story. The religious power were Annas and Caiaphas. Annas' time as high priest technically had ended, 
but he hung on to the title and had significant influence still. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So that's the, the religious rulers. We have the political rulers. And what's interesting in history is that period of time with, with oppression and domination was also called the Pax Romana. Pax is a Latin word for peace. The peace of Rome. Well, I guess if you want to define peace as just the absence of conflict, maybe that's accurate. But there was terror and oppression. There were, there were good things that happened under that. Uh, you probably have heard about Roman roads, the infrastructure that they created, the, the uh, unified legal system. So some, some positives with that, but is it peace when it's domination? And in the middle of all of this, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, who had separated himself from, um, from towns. He was out in the wilderness. I'd love to know more about that, but one of these days. The word of God came to John. Notice God did not speak to the political power, and God did not speak to the religious leaders. He had called a prophet, and that's who he spoke to. John began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he uses a construction metaphor here. Luke 3, 4 through 6 gives this language of preparing the way, make his path straight, every valley filled, every mountain and hill laid low, the crooked will become straight, the rough way smooth. I live in Mount Juliet, just in the Providence area, just off 40. And like, like most areas around Nashville, the building permits were granted far before people actually thought about, oh, how will the roads handle all of this? And so we have had Lots of construction at the exit that I, that I get off going home or, or coming here. And so when I read this, I, I immediately had that image come to mind of the, the work they're doing to, to slice hills away and straighten things and smooth out parts of the road to prepare for the traffic that's going to be on that road. And so as John began preaching this baptism of repentance, it makes us aware that there's preparation to be made in welcoming Jesus. There's some dealing with stuff. The filling the valleys, the making the mountains level, the straightening the crooked way. There's preparation to be done to welcome Jesus. And what I would say to you today is that preparation is repentance. A turning away from what is not God and turning towards God. The beautiful, amazing thing about repentance is that it doesn't generate with us. We don't start it. Repentance is ever and only and always our response 
to God's love. Always it is our response to God's love. It is, it is our response to the spirit moving, our response to that love, that, that great love. It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And so in Advent, in this time of waiting and preparing, anticipating the coming of Jesus, we're reminded again to do the preparation of repentance we continue to prepare for Jesus' coming more deeply into our lives, into those places where we hide hurt and anger and sometimes even the things we don't, we don't ever want to think about or look at again. Those are the places that need to experience peace, to be made whole. Those are the places Jesus comes to this Advent in us. Pastor Aaron mentioned that um, I went back to school a few years ago for training as a spiritual director, and one of the theologians I read in, in that process was M. Robert Mulholland, and I love this quote from him. Um, I'll put it on social media, too, so if, if, you don't, if you can't take notes, you'll have it. The way to spiritual wholeness lies in an, in an increasingly faithful response to the one whose purpose shapes our path, whose grace redeems our detours, whose power liberates us from the crippling bondages of the prior journey, and whose transforming presence meets us at each turn in the road. As we think about that language John used on on bringing the mountains down and filling the valleys, Our increasingly faithful response to God is part of the call of preparation. And what does that look like? What does an increasingly faithful response look like for the church? What does it look like for us as individuals? Let's go to Malachi. It's our Old Testament text for today. Malachi 3 See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present their offerings to the Lord in righteousness. An increasingly faithful response. Oh, sorry. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as in days of old and years gone by. Our increasingly faithful response is to deal with some of the stuff. To let the the love of God show you the places that you need peace in your heart, peace in your life. And Malachi, who was that last prophet before the 400 years of silence? Malachi says, it's going to be like a refiner's fire purifying us 
like a soap that cleanses us. Now let's go to Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He loves these people. He really loves these people. This is going to help us see a little more clearly, I think, what it looks like to live a faithful response. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know, often when we read scripture, we read it through the lens of the individual, of the personal. What is, what is this to me? And it's helpful, I think, to, to stop and remember that Paul was writing this to a body of believers, to a church. And so how do we understand it as a body of believers, as a church? How do we, as another group of believers who are part of the whole body of Christ, how do we corporately live an increasingly faithful response? We have peace with God. He has begun a good work in us, Paul said. And he wrote in another letter that uh, at one time we were enemies of God, alienated from him, but now he has reconciled us to himself. God's good work continues in us, forming us, and we cooperate with that good work that he is doing by our response to it. Our cooperation is marked by repentance, by turning from what is not God towards God. Over and over again, this happens as the Holy Spirit makes us aware of the things in us that are not God. Attitudes, judgments, callousness, disregard, our increasingly faithful response is to turn from those, and y'all, some of them, we have a bear hug around, to turn from those things and turn toward God, to be refined and purified, and to be confident that we are in peace with God through Christ we also have peace with ourselves. I had a conversation not too long ago with someone, and we were talking about sin and repentance and confession. And what that person said has just 
stayed with me. In fact, I, I wrote it down to make sure I wouldn't forget it because it just, I think it so clearly speaks to because we have peace with God, we can have peace within ourselves. The person said, I can acknowledge my sin, I can confess my sin with sorrow, not shame. I can confess my sin with sorrow, not shame. Because of this good work God is doing with us, the peace we have with him, we have that peace within ourselves, that confidence that he will hear us, that he will forgive us when we confess sin, that he will come again more deeply into those places in our lives that need shalom. And we have peace with each other. Peace is a posture we take with each other. Paul uses this language of a love growing in knowledge and wisdom. We don't often think about love and knowledge and wisdom kind of all together. We tend to separate head and heart and have, have definite ideas about what each is doing. And Paul says that, I hope, I pray your love will grow in knowledge and wisdom or discernment. And that love leads us to understand what's important and what's not important. Some of the translations say what is superior. That kind of love growing in us in knowledge and wisdom helps us to understand what's important and what's not important. That love helps us see where we're tempted to desire something like Pax Romana. What's called peace, but has no wholeness, no flourishing, no shalom, that is harmful to someone else. It's more about power than peace. A love growing in knowledge and discernment helps us to know what's best so that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that comes through Christ Jesus. What comes to mind for you when you think of fruit of righteousness? This love growing in knowledge and discernment glorifies God. And so on this second Sunday of Advent, this Peace Sunday, I take us back to Zechariah to the proclamation he made at the end of his blessing. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, as a spiritual director, I want to give you some homework. Because I love to do I love to have these conversations about faith and and how to, how to have an increasingly faithful response to God. So what I will ask you to do is sometime over the next few days, find a place of stillness and quiet, a place where you can, can experience the presence of the one who loves you, the God who created you, the God who took on flesh and blown, bone and blood to defeat the enemy for you. To sit with him with the question, where within me would you like to come? Where have I not yet welcomed you?
come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our cry today is that you would come. That as we move toward this celebration of your incarnation, that we would welcome you in places that we have hidden away, that we clutch tightly to. And we ask you, Lord, to bring peace, shalom, wholeness, healing. We offer ourselves to this good work that you are doing in us. And we are grateful.